Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co-host, Bern Henson, and today we're going to be circling back to a topic we first touched on earlier this year in episode 37 with Dr. Stephanie Zoltowski, that being how members of law enforcement interact with those in the special needs community, more specifically as it relates to our guest today, those with autism, because not only does our guest have a law enforcement background, he's also in the unique position of having a son who is diagnosed with autism. And Michael Warren, as someone who himself has a chronic medical condition as I do, one of the things you try to do is educate and raise awareness to those in the general public who may not understand where you're coming from or what you're going through. I think awareness is key to try to just have people understand your point of view, your perspective. Well, well, Brent, I, I'm excited about uh, the discussion today because Doc and I, we, we've, we've talked before. And one of the things we want to talk about today is, is how sometimes what we think we know in law enforcement uh, maybe isn't very true. And uh, being unaware, you know, uh, can cause problems. I remember early in my career, that uh, when I found out that those that are diabetic can sometimes exhibit the same exact behaviors as somebody who's under the influence of alcohol. It's one of those things. I mean, how many times in law enforcement have people been taken to jail for drunk driving when they actually were having a diabetic reaction? They were actually in a medical emergency. And because we didn't know we didn't handle it correctly. And ultimately, that's what I hope that our listeners get out of today is it constantly be learning and learn from the mistakes of others. Knowledge is power. I mean, once you get that information out there, you know, have a different perspective, different point of view and know about these different things that can make a tremendous difference in someone's life. Well, well Brent, I, I know that, that you may not believe this, but there have been times in my life that I have been known for being very hard headed. Uh, maybe even pig headed, uh, uh, maybe stubborn as a mule. But the truth of the matter is, if we go through life and our perspectives never change at all, we're not learning. That's a life wasted, as I've heard. But I tell you, lives wasted in today's society have much broader impact than it just between you and I. It, it, it can affect our families, our communities, and the professions. I hope people coming to this episode, they have an open mind and they're willing to listen and learn because that's only going to help them in their careers going forward, whether they're in law enforcement or just just everyday John Q. Public like I am. What we try to talk about in, in this podcast on all of our episodes uh, obviously is law enforcement related, but we do try, I think, to make it as applicable across society as, as possible because, you know, we, we don't live in silos. We, we don't operate in silos. Uh, we certainly shouldn't be learning in silos. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Yep. So why don't you go ahead and bring our, our guest on? He's a smart guy. Be careful. Uh-oh. Well, our guest today, he uh, served as a combat medic with the U.S. Marine Corps before starting a 20-year career in law enforcement, first as an officer with the city of Salisbury, Maryland Police Department, and then as a sergeant with the Boynton Beach Police Department before retiring in 2016. He's a graduate of the University of Louisville's Command Officer Development Course and holds a Doctor of Philosophy degree in Psychology. 
we welcome Doc Davis to the podcast. And I just want to clarify this. You got your nickname Doc before you got your PhD. Is that correct? Yeah, I got Doc <laughs> when I was still in the Navy. Uh, Navy corner with Marine Infantry. Foreshadowing is that. That's what they call that in literature, right? <laughs> kind of seems that way sometimes. Hey, Doc, man, it's good to see you again, brother. I appreciate it, Mike. Now, now Doc and I, we, we met at Aelita. Uh, a while ago, I was fortunate to run into him again this year uh, at Ailita, and I was able to go to his class. And that class, it kind of spurred some conversation uh, between Doc and I. So, Doc, I'm going to go ahead and again, uh, our listeners probably are tired of hearing it, but I think it should be out there. It amazes me the number of people in this profession that literally have done a, a lifetime of public service. Oh. Uh, how did you go about joining the Navy? What 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 brought you there? Um, going to the Navy, I'm originally from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and going to the Navy was about broadening horizons, kind of expanded opportunities. Uh, I enlisted in '93. It was in, it was after the first Gulf War, but before the second. Just kind of wanted to do my part to to help and to also set myself up for increased opportunities moving forward. Now, is the Navy like the Army where as long as you test well and there are openings uh, in that particular MOS, uh, do you get to choose your MOS or is it was it assigned to you? No, you get to choose what job you're going into um, at the MEPS, you know, military entrance processing. Based on your test scores, you can talk about wanting to get into whichever specific career field you want. The recruiters tried to push me to go nuclear because of my test scores, and I was having none of that. <laughs> my uncle was Navy. He was on an aircraft carrier, and because he had access to the radiological spaces, he had to wear a uh, one of the detectors, radiation detector. Right. And every month, his radiation detector had the highest level of radiation because he was the only one who made it on the flight deck and got exposed to the sun. Really? So all the guys who worked the reactor spent so much time under the decks. The only radiation there they picked up was from the shielded reactors, and the sun was giving my uncle more radiation than they were getting. And I'm really? like, yeah, I, I really actually enjoy seeing the sun sometimes. <laughs> Listen, it, it takes a special person to, to work on a Navy sub. And in fact, there are a whole bunch of testing that is done to make sure they're suitable for that. There's a whole bunch of jokes about that, too. Well, I worked with a guy that worked on a sub. He was a cook on a sub, and I'm pretty certain that it rendered him unable to get a tan. <laughs> because the, the entire time, the entire time I worked with that dude, he was always pasty white. It didn't matter if it was summer or winter, my man, always pasty white. So we always told him it was because of his time below the surface. Oh, that, that might be contagious because I pretty much glow in the dark. <laughs> Listen, man, there's a reason why I don't do these things with my shirt off because... We, we don't have those kind of filters on here. So, you, you know, so, so you go in and you chose medic and why, why medic? I, I mean, and I know that, you know, they, they always say, Hey, make sure you choose a job that's going to help you get a job in the civilian world. Did, did that play into your decision at all? Uh, no, not really. Um, I always had a, I had a background working in areas where I would have to help others. So, again, being the medic was about helping and doing for others. But working as a medic in that type of environment, it's a little bit different than it is in the civilian world. I mean, it's 
sometimes you, you not only are the medic, but you, you serve as the doc, the literal doc, because there may not be facilities around to take the person to immediately. Yeah, it depends on the situation. Um, the combat medics, whether they're Navy, uh, Army, Air Force, uh, the combat medics do have a, a higher level of training because of the fact that, you know, you may be in situations where you are the end care. That's all they're going to get. You're not always able to immediately evac people. You're not necessarily going to be able to get them to that next level of triage. So sometimes you just have to be able to step up and handle it yourself. You know, they make movies about stuff like that. You know, uh, shoot, I can't remember the name of the movie, but uh, Desmond Doss, you know, the World yeah. War World War II hero. You know, the, the stuff that he was able to do under adverse conditions. I have to imagine, though, that that training and that experience prepared you incredibly well for your future career in law enforcement. I think it was a good lead over. Um, again, when I was getting out, there was a lot of uh, politics going on with the nurses, unions, trying to get a lot of the military training to not be recognized I don't know if there was a fear that the military medics were going to start supplanting or replacing nurse positions, but I, I was literally facing the prospect of having to start over and like redo basic anatomy after having coming out of the military where the battalion, last battalion surgeon I had trusted me enough that I'd had guys come in and, you know, a guy got his hand caught in a fan of a Humvee and took him over and sutured everything back together. Another guy comes in with a cyst on the back of, you know, on his left shoulder blade. And I'm the one who removed that. You know, you go from that level uh, of medicine that you're performing and then you go out into the civilian world and like, yeah, you're going to have to go back and rememorize the bones and the body and the muscles and all the different cells in the blood. No, I can't can't see me going through that again. It was bad enough the first time. (laughs) So when I went back home, I had the opportunity to interview uh, with the Salisbury Police Department, about 100 sworn officers, very solid training agency, uh, really good skills for the officers that work there. One of those places where no matter what type of law enforcement you're interested in, you have the opportunity to experience and get the reps in and and learn and progress. So that was my first cop job. You know, it's kind of interesting, the the story you tell about the nurses, because in, in most states, it's only been in the past few years that if you have somebody that was a military police officer, and now they're transitioning in, into civilian policing. They used to have to go through the entire academy, basic police academy. Again, there was no recognition of their previous service. Now most states have some type of, uh, of shortened police academy a couple weeks just to teach them the laws. And then, it, and it just, listen, we have limited resources. It just seems like that's the way to go. And the training that's provided in the military and the circumstances that's done under, I would be willing to bet that your first police department was very pleased with the product that they brought in when they got you. Yeah, those comparative compliance programs are absolutely a good thing. You know, as long as we're making sure that we're vetting people and, and, you know, the military obviously has a standard that they're going to maintain. That's not even questioned. So 
it's a good thing. You bring them in, you go through the comparative clients program where you're putting them through all the high liability issues, getting them familiarized with the local, you know, the state and local ordinances and statutes. It, it should be a, a shorter transition. I mean, cop, cop is cop no matter where it is. It's just a matter of learning what the rules are locally. So, so your career there, it starts off, you had, you had a good base because they were a good training department, but uh, you didn't stay there. For your entire career. I got tired of being cold. <laughs> okay, uh, buddy. All right. I have to interject here. Okay. <laughs> Maryland may be cool. Okay. But from a guy who lives in Michigan, I'm going to say it may probably didn't get cold. Okay. Remember Eastern shore. So in between the Atlantic ocean and the Chesapeake Bay. So it's not just the temperature. It's the fact that it's wet cold. Uh, you got tired of being cold, so where'd you head next? Yeah, at the time I got cold, Boynton Beach, Florida was running a national advertisement. They had a melted snowman on the beach. <laughs> and I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> so I went and it was actually when I say I got cold, the ink in my pen froze on a traffic stop. So, okay. Yeah, I got you. That's when I started looking. I, I found that advertisement. I was online filling out the application that night. You know, Doc, would you agree with me that that right there is incredibly effective advertising? They knew who their target audience was and they hit the mark. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoever did did their advertising on that one did did their job. Yeah, listen, you know, you got to play to your strengths. And if your strength is, we got nice sunny weather, you got to find a way to get that out there. And, and they did it. So, so you make the move. You make the well, move. How was the transition? Well, before we get into the transition, going back to the, the PR firm that did that advertisement. Yeah. Boynton Beach doesn't have a beach. <laughs> well, I think we have to talk to the founding fathers about that. <laughs> Name no, the they, city. They had one, but they sold it. <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome. That's like when you apply somewhere and they're like, we're building a brand new building. It's going to be state of the art. And you get there and it's an old building. <laughs> that is awesome. So, so so you get there and you find out there's not a beach and you go, well, that didn't work out as well as I hoped. Yeah. But, you know, I ended up coming down. Uh, it was a good time to come down. And Boynton was a lot like where I had come from. Boynton's 25 square miles at the time was about 150, 155 sworn. And it was the same thing as that I had come from. It didn't matter what type of law enforcement, what area of law enforcement you were interested in. They had that issue going on. You wanted to do white collar. Good. You wanted to do street level narcotics. Okay. You wanted to do the UC stuff. Okay. You wanted to get into, you know, uh, community oriented policing. We got that going on. So no matter what you were interested in, they had it and you could expand your knowledge in that realm. Would it be accurate to say that uh, you often were able to use your passions to its fullest? If you had that passion, you're obviously going to do probably do a better job if you're working that area than if you're forced to do something. Hey, eh, you know, I really don't care about traffic or I really don't care. Listen, uh, I, I don't care about this particular area. You know, look, every agency's got its, you know, uh, idiosyncrasies about how you get into the specialty units, but, um, the, the opportunities were there. That's awesome. So what were some of the positions that you held while you were at that agency? For the longest, I just stayed on road patrol, was just kind of the jack of all trades, master of none. 
uh, ended up getting into, we had a contract with the community redevelopment agency. So I went into a uh, directed patrol style unit that was funded by the community redevelopment. They wanted targeted patrol in specific areas. And, you know, so from day to day, you never knew what it was going to be. Um, whatever the, the hot button issue of the day was for that group, we kind of got assigned to handle all of that. So that one was fun. From there, ended up back on the road shortly, uh, going into my promotion to sergeant. From sergeant on road patrol for a while, uh, ended up taking over building and developing our hostage negotiation team, also the stress management team. So essentially, uh, any critical incidents that our officers went through, so any police-involved shooting, any major crashes, or if our officers responded to a very traumatic call, we actually started utilizing the uh, Mitchell and Everly peer support model created by the doctors out of Johns Hopkins. That ended up being a really good thing for the men and women at my agency, really helped a lot. Later on, took over code enforcement. Let me take you back to the uh, the, the negotiation assignment. And, and the reason I want to take you back there is is because uh, on, on a previous episode, we had Gary Nessner, the FBI's primary uh, hostage negotiator uh, during the 90s, did some fantastic work. I mean, uh, the behavioral change stairway model and all that type of stuff. Incredibly great guy. But one of the things I learned from Gary is, is that I would suck at his job. Okay, that 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 became very, very clear to me. And so I want to ask you, what was it about that assignment that made you say, you know what, not only do I want to do that job, but I think I can be successful at that job? With the negotiation, it's very much about interpersonal skills and communication. Additionally, it becomes important to understand personalities and personality types. When you look at the field of negotiation, I mean, Based on the FBI statistics out of their hostage and barricade system, it's estimated that about 52% of the people that negotiators deal with have some sort of a mental disorder, which it makes sense. That mirrors what the American Psychological Association estimates as societal levels. It estimates that about half of America will have will qualify as having a mental disorder at some point during their lifetime. So kind of makes sense. Before I moved to Florida, I'd already finished my bachelor's in psychology. So I had that basic understanding, uh, especially with abnormal psychology, the different mental disorders. It wasn't a new interest for you then. This this was no. something that, that you had undertaken study of before. And, and then this came open and, and it was a way that you could apply it practically. Yeah, absolutely. Brent, I, I do want to point out that when I, I, I said I couldn't do that job, I would suck at that job. And I asked him, what about it? The very first thing he leaves, well, you got to have interpersonal skills. <laughs> it's funny how he got that little jab <laughs> little in. As soon, there, as, yeah. as soon as I said I wouldn't be able to do it, well, here's why. Bam, you can't. You don't have any well, interpersonal first skills. first off, <laughs> You are a broken human. All right, uh -huh. anyway, I'm fascinated by that particular job right there. And, and the reason is, is because... It's incredibly difficult if you're working a perimeter, but you, you may be at the scene of a barricade. And if you're the one that's providing, you know, perimeter security, dude, that kind of assignment used to drive me 
absolutely batty. I mean, it was so monotonous. You know what I mean? And, and I can, and I, but see, but to me, that, that, that whole negotiation thing had some of the same characteristics because you, you often had to say the thing, same thing. You'll cover the same ground over and over because many of them were in mental crisis. Dude, I don't know how you guys and gals do that job, but the ones who are good at it, they make a tremendous difference in the outcome of those events. Yeah, I mean, again, going back to the FBI, when we look at their statistics from incidents where we have to go tactical versus we're able to successfully negotiate, it's really amazing the, the difference in the numbers. Um, unfortunately, when we go tactical, it's not always just the person holding hostages that ends up hurt. It's also hostages. It's also bystanders. It's also law enforcement. And the injuries go beyond the physical ones. Uh, when we had uh, Gary on the podcast, we talked about Waco. And part of the injury that was incurred was the reputation and respectability of law enforcement because of the way that it ended. I listen, kudos to you folks who can do the job and do it well. Uh, just know that if you're ever looking to put together a team, I'm not somebody you should be calling because I will jack it up for you. I think additionally with Waco, the, the one other injury that maybe didn't get discussed and doesn't get discussed enough really is the psychological injury. Oh, yeah. To the negotiators, to the tactical members that were part of the initial raid. If you ever go back and you look at interviews, I mean, even a decade after Waco, you look at interviews of some of the individuals that were there. And when they talk about it, they are still very emotionally raw because of the, the outcome of that event. And, you know, obviously Gary was there and he can speak to the specifics of, of what did and didn't happen much better than I can, having only, you know, investigated it through, you know, all the, the open source materials. But it, it's hard on law enforcement when they have a situation that doesn't end, quote unquote, well. You have a negotiator trying to stop somebody in crisis from completing the act of suicide. That leaves an impact on them. I, I had two negotiators who were trying to talk a 16-year-old girl into not jumping off one of the billboards on the side of an interstate about a 70 foot jump. And unfortunately for them, they were not successful. The kid jumped. If you don't believe in a higher power, you're not paying attention. This kid jumped 70 feet approximate and lived. She collapsed both lungs, but did not have a single broken bone in her body. Took her to the trauma center, reinflated her lungs. She was fine. That is absolutely, in my my view, proof of a higher power because I can sleep on a pillow wrong and I can't move my neck for a couple of days. So, so the fact that they can survive 70 feet, there's something else out there that has a hand in things. Yeah. I want to take you, if I could, for a second, you and I talked about a, a particular call that, that had tremendous impact on you. I think that it's ironic based upon what we just talked about, how differently that call could have ended and how the rest of your life would have been on a different trajectory. So, so why don't you just walk us through what the call was about and how you came to be in the place that you were? So this was before I moved to Florida. Uh, it was up in Salisbury, Maryland, a little street called Collins Street. And I had next door neighbors who were rival drug dealers. 
And they had been a long-term project. I mean, we were constantly dealing with these two individuals, just nothing but problems. And I had finally got enough to walk a warrant through on one of them. And I was trying to serve it and the guy wasn't there. Well, who better to tell me where he's hiding than his competition? <laughs> Let the police help you handle your competition problem. You want to make more money this week? Help me get rid of your competition. Absolutely. Um, so I go next door to talk to the competition. And before I even get onto the front porch of this house, which it's an old farmhouse that's been divided into a duplex. And the front porch is about 10, 12 feet deep. And before I even get to the steps to get onto the porch, I can already smell the marijuana coming out of the house. So I've got a trainee with me. I send him around to block the side door. And as the front door opens, there's about seven people in this front room. There's nine of them in the house. We end up getting everything locked down and contained. And we recover five one-ounce rocks of crack cocaine. So total weight was 151.5 grams. We had called for backup. And then because of the, the you know madness of the moment, I hadn't heard them ask for clarification. So they toned it. And I got my entire city plus about half of the county that was next door respond. So when I turn around, the entire street is completely blocked by, uh, by police vehicles. Get everything calmed down, and I'm getting evidence bags out of the trunk of my car. And on the opposite side of the street, there are these three little old ladies that are sitting there whispering to each other and pointing at me. And I had that typical cop, us versus them mentality thing going on. And I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. These two assholes over here, always dealing with guns, always dealing with problems. And we hit the house, nine people. There was only two of us originally. We end up recovering like four guns, all this dope. And I'm like, at that point, okay, I've had enough. So I turn and with as much sarcasm as I could muster, I ask them if I could help you. Can I help you? And this lady looks at me and she goes, oh, no, officer. We're just so happy now that they're both going to be gone. We'll actually be able to sit outside on our porch tomorrow. And in that moment, I felt about two inches tall and I stopped and Collins Street is small. It's not huge. And I realized I did not know anything about the other houses on that street. I only knew about the two. And it really made me start looking at every neighborhood I was in differently. Because in almost every neighborhood, there was only one or two houses that I knew anything about. And yet here's all these other homes. And in a lot of cases, they were really good, truly hardworking people. Many of them living in buildings that I wouldn't let my pet stay in because they couldn't afford or didn't have the history to get into anything better. And here I am looking at them with the same disdain, the same negative views that I had for the criminals that were essentially making them prisoners in their own homes. What well, Doug, what we train to look for threats, right? That when, when you're coming into an area, you're scanning, you're looking for potential threats so that if a threat appears that you're able to deal with it. But the unspoken piece of that is once you determine something is not a threat or something you don't believe is a threat, we no longer see it. 
I don't have a story exactly like yours, but I think about the invisible faces, you know, the bodies without faces that I would go past in neighborhoods and I would no longer see them. The only thing I saw was the troublemaker's house or, or, or this particular vehicle right there. And how many of those people did I ignore throughout my career who were supporting what we were doing there? And I blew them off. Not only that, but when you build relationships with those houses, it's amazing how much more support you get individually and organizationally. Well, I would propose that it probably would make us safer, too, because they're, you're going to get information about potentially dangerous things and people from those people if you have those relationships. I, I love how you tell the story when you, when you say, listen, there were some streets that I knew one house, one house. Could tell you everything about that house, but that was the only house that I knew. And it was at the exclusion of all the other ones there. So when, when you had that happen to you, what do you mean that it changed your perspective, not only on that neighborhood, but the rest of the neighborhood? What did it change in you? It, it really started to change the us versus them because them is impersonal. Them is kind of this abstract. And like you say, the invisible faces. So it really made me start looking for who else was in that neighborhood. It made me start realizing that you couldn't treat everybody the same. And this goes back to, you talk about being on that perimeter position in a negotiation. I can't tell you how many times I've had officers on the perimeter or tactical officers tell us, well, just tell them, just tell them this. Well, you cannot talk to somebody who's depressed the same way you talk to somebody who is absolutely beyond raging over what they view as a violation of their world order. You can't talk to them the same way. You can't talk to a schizophrenic who's hearing voices or seeing things the same way you talk to an antisocial personality who is your career criminal. You just can't. And unfortunately, how much training do we get on mental health and law enforcement? We don't realize that people aren't the same. When we go to use of force training, you've got, what, four options? It don't work that way in the real world. Well, well Doc, there's an old saying that goes that if you believe everybody's an asshole, it's amazing how easy it is to find assholes. And if you think about that, though, if that's our view of the world, and if we truly believe that about everybody that we have, we come in contact with, then how are we going to talk to them? We're going to talk to them like they're assholes. And if you talk to people in that manner long enough, guess how they start to act like assholes. Or they realize that you're an asshole and treat you as such. Well, I would, I'll be honest with you. They realized it a heck of a lot sooner than what I realized it. But at some point I did. But the thing is, though. If you talk to people that are suffering from some type of mental illness or mental breakdown, it can make the situation much worse, even more quickly. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the whole concept behind the use of force is either the person's going to comply to avoid potential pain or they're going to comply to stop whatever pain is being applied. Well, what happens when you're not mentally capable of comprehending that connection? Wait, no, wait, so wait, stop right there for a second. 
Well, so you're, you're telling me that there are some people who aren't capable of recognizing that. Well, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever been so mad you could not form a sentence? Have you been spying on me? Because he answered yes. <laughs> <laughs> we all have. Look, it, it, that's part of being human. In that moment that you were so mad you could not form a sentence, if somebody had hit you with a taser, would you have been able to comprehend this stops when I behave? No, because I, I don't think tasers ever stop. All the times I got shocked, well, they never stopped. Pepper spray, baton, pressure point. No, it. no, because it, I'm not thinking logically. I, I'm no. not thinking with my, my healthy, logical mind. Okay, so let's take that a step further. Okay. In our brain, we have this little device called, this little structure called the amygdala. It's your fear center. Its job is to scan the environment for threats. When it sees a threat, it activates the limbic system, part of the HPA axis. The limbic system gives you that adrenaline and cortisol dump. It also steals the oxygenated blood away from your frontal lobe, the part of your brain responsible for, I wouldn't do that if I was you. It steals the oxygenated blood away from that part of the brain and shoves that oxygenated blood down into the more primal, animalistic brain centers, more survival-based brain centers. So somebody who's in crisis that limbic system is in full effect. Their ability to think rationally, again, that frontal lobe, the oxygenated blood is not getting there. So yeah, when they feel pain, you ever accidentally get yourself zapped by a 110 outlet? Oh yeah. You pull away really quick, right? What happens when you're stuck and you can't pull away? Do you relax or do you fight harder to pull away? You fight harder. This is what's happening to the person in crisis when you're applying force to them, they're going to fight harder to escape the pain because they're not able to think rationally enough to comprehend if I comply, the pain will stop. But then that goes in direct contradiction to a lot of the training that law enforcement receives, because when you go to, to arrest somebody and, and you have to use a pain compliance technique if they resist, then what do we do? We fight harder. Well, well, that just makes the situation worse, doesn't it? But herein lies the issue. We have to look beyond what they're doing and try to determine why. Is this person resisting because they're in crisis or is this person resisting because they're that criminal asshole? And this, and this comes into everybody's favorite buzzword, de-escalation. Look, de-escalation is not something I can do to somebody else. De-escalation is an opportunity that I give you. De-escalation is an opportunity for you to make the right decision. The only thing worse than using too much force is not using enough. You know, again, we have to try to figure out not just whether the person is resisting, but why. If they're resisting because they can't comprehend that compliance equals less pain, then we have to figure out what we're going to do. Do we have this person geographically contained? Is there a reason based on tactics that we're forced to go directly into hands-on? Or can we let, leave this person, let's say we've got them cornered in a room, there's no weapons involved, can we give them more time to work through things? Or do we have to go directly into that force confrontation? 
Well, you, you just said something I thought was incredibly insightful when you said that de-escalation is giving them the opportunity. Okay. But, but would you agree that there are many times that if we handle things in improperly, we deny them the opportunity to de-escalate themselves? Look, the only person who can de-escalate somebody is themselves. That doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of things we do to make situations worse. I'll go back to uh, uh, Dr. Zoltowski uh, when we had her on here. One of the things I thought that she did a, a magnificent job of talking about was understanding the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown. A tantrum, somebody's doing intentionally and try to get their way, where a meltdown, they're overwhelmed. And, and oftentimes the best thing to do is to let them have the meltdown. As long as they're not hurting themselves or some other person, allowing them that opportunity. We talk about generalities and theory, but in the moment, sometimes these are split second decisions. How do you train someone to recognize those in the moment so they can assess the situation? Uh, It becomes very difficult. And again, we're asking law enforcement to do things that in many cases they've never been trained to do. Um, With regard to, uh, you know, Stephanie's thing with the, the difference between the temper tantrum and the meltdown. Externally, they look the same. The difference is what we call the locus of control. An individual having a meltdown, it's essentially, uh, if you want to compare it to a seizure. If somebody was having a seizure, could you force them into stopping by applying a force? No. And that's the same thing with a meltdown. With the meltdown, the person doesn't have control over that behavior. It's in fact, you can think about it like a, an electrical short circuit in the brain. Whereas a kid having a temper tantrum, I've seen a lot of those where the parent grabs them, one swat, temper tantrum ends. The child having a temper tantrum is able to control it. Meltdowns, no. The, the locus of control, it, it's a biological thing. It's not something the individual is actively doing. In the words of uh, a couple people I, I love, Greg Williams and Brian Marin, they talk all the time about when, when you're able, give yourself the gift of time and distance. And, and that gift of time and distance is often what allows us to make that determination. Because a lot of the time that we encounter people that are in crisis, there are people around with additional information about their history that will help us determine what we're dealing with at the time. But too often we're in a rush Uh, Because I've said this before on on the podcast, Uh, I think we have to reframe what we mean by we want people that have a bias for action because action doesn't always have to be about going hands on. A bias for action is about doing the right thing. And, And sometimes doing the right thing is assessing so we can make that determination or hopefully make that determination. Again, it's important to gather as much information as possible before contact is made. And this fits into everything we do and what we've even talked about here with regard to that 16 year old um, girl who was on the billboard. The intel they had when they were deciding which negotiator was going to be primary, the male or the female, the information they had at the time was that she had been sexually assaulted a year prior. So they decided female should be the negotiator. The part they missed was the reason she was on the billboard is because she'd had an argument with mom that morning. She had moved on. Mom hadn't from the incident. 
mom found out about conversations between the girl and her boyfriend and what their plans for the weekend were, and mom grounded her. So the reason the girl's on that billboard is because she's upset with a female authority figure. Do we still think the female's the best negotiator? And I want to defend uh, the, the officers out there, and I know you think the same way because uh, you and I have had the discussion. Uh, oftentimes, you don't have the gift of time and distance. Oh, absolutely. You, know, you, you, you have to make those instantaneous decisions, and you go, you make the best decision possible with the information you have. But I think part of the problem is the, the manner in which we train. It, it, we're, we're, we're pushing the encounter rather than the taking the time that's available to us. Right. And please don't think I'm bashing my, my, no, 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 no. They did did a phenomenal job. Um, Again, it comes down to, you have to evaluate situations and it goes back to what you were saying. A lot of times we make these situations time critical through our own actions. Um, You know, with the, with the advantage of time and distance, sometimes we can do a little more observing we can ask dispatch to give us more information. We can contact the people that are on the scene to ask them questions. So again, it, it's not to bash the officers because let's be honest, police officers on a daily basis make decisions in milliseconds that allegedly much smarter doctors, lawyers, and judges take months and or years to debate. And, and still will often disagree even after all that. Yes. I, I think it's important this is such an important topic because I, I don't think that people have an appreciation of how prevalent people in mental crisis are on the calls in which officers respond to. There was a National Sheriff's Association did a, a study a few years ago on the prevalence of mental illness inside our jails and, and the percentage of, of people who are locked up in our jails that are suffering from some type of mental illness is astounding. Yet, yet they're locked up in many cases with people who aren't. And, and it creates some incredible safety issues for the inmates. It creates incredible safety issues for the correctional officers, quite honestly, that we just aren't equipped to deal with at that scale. Yeah. There's actually a two part uh, article that just came out. Part two just came out this week was put out by caliber press written by Nick Greco uh, out of Illinois. He's the CIT trainer for the Chicago Police Department. He does a lot of really good work up north. Um, and he talks about the fact that back in the uh, 60s, when Kennedy did the work that he did to begin the deinstitutionalization process, we really started to see the problems. And then you move even further ahead from that in 75, when the Supreme Court ruled that you could not institutionalize somebody who did not pose a risk of harm to themselves or others. I think that was the, was it McDonald case, the McDonald decision? Um, Sounds right. But essentially with the Kennedy steps back in the sixties, we were supposed to be building community centers to help provide mental health care to these individuals so that they could be taken out of these cold institutions and brought back what they were calling into the warm embrace of the community And the problem is these community centers never got built. They never got fully funded. And essentially what has replaced the institutions, you know, the old quote unquote insane asylums 
What has replaced those is the number one mental health treatment facilities in America are the jails. There was an article that came out, I saw this week, the three largest mental health providers or institutions providing mental health in the country, uh, Cook County Jail, L.A. County Jail, and another jail. And they, they are staffed by law enforcement personnel primarily with very little medical support, where at least the, uh, the the institutions that used to be around did have a much larger representation of medical staff who were better prepared and better educated to deal with that. I don't want to make excuses. I, I'm looking for solutions, but we we wonder why we get bad outcomes when we send in people who are ill-prepared to deal with that type of situation and then we sit back and we ridicule decisions that the officers made and wonder, well, you know what? Well, why didn't that quote unquote professional do a better job? Because, again, it's not an area that we specialize in. It's honestly, it's not something we're supposed to be doing. You go back to the origins of CIT in Memphis and the original premise was that this was going to be the beginning of getting law enforcement out of doing mental health. And yet now it's regarded as the primary method of training law enforcement to do mental health work. But and it's because it's just the best tool that we have. We're not trained. We're not educated. We're not allowed to make diagnoses. And we certainly don't have the time because that's a time intensive endeavor. Yet when whenever there is a a headline, when things go wrong, the diagnosis is what leads the story. You know, uh, you know, schizophrenic shot by police. It's unfortunate because no one, no one is sicker about those encounters that go poorly than the police officer is. You know, the psycho, you, you talked about the psychological impact of those types of encounters. It tears them up. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I'm teaching, I always come back to circumstances dictate tactics. You know, especially in my crisis classes, I get very deep into the diagnostic criteria not because I want the officers to go out there and be diagnosing people. I tell them straight up, you shouldn't be. But it's important that we understand that just because you hear a label doesn't always mean you know exactly what it's going to look like. It really doesn't matter if you're dealing with somebody who's, you know, displaying the signs of mania. Does it matter if they're on the manic side of bipolar or the manic side of borderline personality disorder? Manic is manic. Yes. You right. know, and, and that goes back to, I think, uh, Thomas Strenn's uh, one of the original FBI negotiation instructors, even before Nesner got in there, he wrote a book and I can never remember the title, but the subtitle is The Bad, the Mad and the Sad. And, you know, and we, we the psychology is important. It's important to understand all of that. But at the same time, we respond to behaviors. We don't respond to labels. One of the things that uh, really bothers me and I know bothers you uh, is that even though we have gotten better on the training side, even though we've gotten better on the response side, we're still not learning from our mistakes. And in fact, there, there was a, a place down near you that I believe that was successfully sued for the way in which they handled a, a, an encounter. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that one? That, that case actually settled. Um, one of the agencies down here was involved in, uh, in Florida, involuntary psychological evaluations are referred to as Baker Acts. A lot of states, it's 5150 or emergency petitions. Every state has their unique statutes. Um, 
And there's actually a, a website called the uh, Treatment Advocacy Center that has done a really good job of consolidating where you go to one place and you can look at the statutes for every state. What this agency had done is essentially they had a, a pattern of uh, completing Baker Acts on autistic children that were in the classrooms causing problems. Now, in Florida, in order to conduct a Baker Act for a law enforcement initiated Baker Act, there's three criteria. Person must have a mental illness. As defined in Chapter 394, they have to either refuse an evaluation, be unable to determine for themselves the need for an evaluation, and number three, they're either going to suffer from neglect or pose a risk of harm to themselves or others. Where a lot of officers make the mistake in Florida, and again, this is kind of not just a Florida thing, but it's a national thing. We're victims of we've always done it this way, uh, very much so in law enforcement, especially if we've always done it this way and nobody's called us on it. So in Florida, again, the three criteria, most officers have no idea criteria number one is even there. They have to have a mental illness. Well, they're autistic. They have a mental illness. Well, except you have to look at what it says as defined in 394. So you go to the definition section for mental illness, and there's a little part in there that says, for purposes of this part, it does not include a developmental disorder as defined in 393. So now you got to go to a different law, and you look up 393, and you go to the definition sections, and you look up developmental disorder, and it includes intellectual disability, what we used to refer to as mental retardation. It includes Willie Prater syndrome. It includes Down syndrome. It includes autism. So you have an autistic child engaging in a self-injury behavior. So my son is very prone to self-injury behaviors. Um, he will punch himself in the face so much that he will actually create lacerations in his face, rip his skin open. Um, he's headbutted. The walls put his head through five sheetrock walls, four windows. He's headbutted the tile floor twice, hard enough for me to take him for CAT scans. Those are stereotyped autistic behaviors. Based on the statute, you cannot Baker Act for that. They were Baker Acting these kids for autistic behaviors. They were sued. Uh, I think there were six families originally along with a group called Disability Rights Florida and the NAACP. We're all part of this lawsuit. And a few months ago, the agency settled. So it never saw a courtroom, but they settled. They paid out $440,000 to the families that were still party to the lawsuit at that point. And then the Disability Rights Florida and NAACP went away because they no longer had standing. It's one of those things where, the, to me, that's the type of outcome that should be uh, heralded from the rooftops so that other agencies don't make the same mistakes. But but I would be willing to bet that there are still agencies in Florida that are continuing to do the same thing and because they don't know about it. They don't know what they don't know, even though they should know. I'm not giving them excuse. Well, again, that lawsuit um, did not get a lot of exposure. Very few people actually know about it. Um, the agency involved obviously does not want a lot of publicity surrounding it. Um, 
but I can tell you, I still have trainers, supervisors telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. And I actually pull the statute out and show it to them. And then they go, oh, yeah, oh. And it's one of those things where you're, you're, you know, you look at your FTOs, your training officers. They're doing it the way they've always done it. How many of them have actually read what their state statute includes? And I talk about Treatment Advocacy Center, one of the one of the shortcomings of their system. They list the Florida statute and they put in there exactly what I just told you regarding the three criteria. But they don't include the definition of mental illness with the exceptions. So you look at it and you go, okay, they have to have a mental illness. Okay, well, they've got one. Well, they have a mental disorder as defined by American Psychological Association, but under your state statute, does it qualify for that psych eval? When you look at the purpose of these, you know, involuntary evaluations, the purpose is to prevent a person from intentionally harming themselves. You got a kid who's having a seizure and because of where they fell, they're throwing their head into a brick wall. We're not going to do an involuntary evaluation on them for that because we know it's not going to help. Well, it's the same thing with the autistic individual and self-injury behaviors. As odd as it sounds, that self-injury behavior is not intended for self-harm. It is an extreme example of a STEM. And, you know, we're starting to at least get more recognition or around the community for what stimming is. It, you know, these SIBs, it is born of frustration and trying to essentially calm themselves down to get past whatever thought process is going on in their brain. They're not saying, oh, I want to hurt myself. So you then take them for this evaluation. You're now taking them out of their comfort zone into a foreign alien environment where really it's, it's actually making things traumatic on them. So you're actually making things worse. I have to ask this question. So you're talking about the 16-year-old girl, the, the attempted suicide, and you guys went back after the fact and you realized that she had a disagreement with her mom and you, you realized, okay, we made the wrong call about male or female is there anywhere where you guys can do those case studies like that and they go into a database where people can read what happened in the case, the case study and what went right, what went wrong or things to do differently so we can try to at least start to avoid making the same mistakes over and over and over again at the different agencies? I'm not familiar of any database that, that tracks those. Uh, what I can tell you is that those types of debriefings are very frequently the absolutely most well-received aspects of training conventions. Uh, you've got NICNA, which is the National Council of Negotiation Associations. I know there's over 30 state associations, but like some of them are combined, like Western states, I think has six states in it. And these groups for the negotiators, again, they have their annual conferences and debriefs uh, will frequently be some of the most attended and most well critiqued uh, training. And it's where teams are coming in and they're debriefing their incident, just like you're talking about, um, except it's live as opposed to just being the paperwork in a, in a database somewhere. The closest thing we come to that is it's more just statistics. And that's the FBI has what they call their hostage and barricade system, HOBUS, 
which is a database where they're tracking statistics on all of these incidents. I couldn't agree anymore with you. Uh, the NASA actually runs this newsletter, for lack of a better term, where people in the aviation industry, no matter if you're a private pilot or a commercial pilot, and what they do is they collect the near misses and they tell the stories about how they almost had these bad things happen. Sometimes as they were looking at the wrong dial or, or they didn't check the map or whatever the case may be. But the idea is to try to prevent as much as possible the, the bad thing from actually happening. And doc, I think you would agree with me that, that in law enforcement, uh, sometimes out of pride, for for ourselves and, and uh, for our agency, sometimes we don't we don't talk a whole lot about our near misses. No, uh, absolutely. Well, it's like you said with the agency down there in Florida. They didn't, you know, they had to pay out in that that lawsuit. They didn't really want to talk about it that much. Yeah. For our listeners, I attended Doc's class at Ilita. If you've listened to this podcast, if you listen to me, you you know that I attend a lot of training. I get to see a lot of presentations. I have very high standards for presentations and docs was one of the most impactful ones that I've seen. Listen, if you want to improve the quality of interactions between your people and people with special needs or people and just people period, this guy right here is a wealth of knowledge, but the way in which he presents it and the credibility he has when he does it is unmatched. It's fantastic training. So, so, Doc, if somebody wanted to find out about that training so that we can mitigate mitigate some of this risk, how would they go about finding out about your training? Honestly, the easiest way to get me, my phone is always on. In order to not be murdered by my wife, it's uh, you know on silent from 1030 at night till 630 in the morning, <laughs> Eastern time. Uh, but if you call twice inside of 10 minutes, it rings through anyway. The cell's 561 eight four six one five zero two and the email is davis r d o c at gmail dot com. And folks, I, I just want you to understand the presentation that I saw, he included uh pictures and, and videos of his son. I don't want to minimize this and I don't want to make this more dramatic or people think I'm over dramatizing it. But when you see somebody use that type of material it takes this from the abstract world and it brings it down into the concrete world because here's a guy that's a law enforcement veteran document. If I'm being transparent with you, uh, one of the things that, that I would worry about is if my child had contact with law enforcement based upon what I know about some of the training that law enforcement receives or even worse, doesn't receive when it comes to dealing with people in crisis. In, in order to be fair, I'm going to throw Canada under the bus on this one. No, they're fair game. <laughs> <laughs> 17-year-old autistic individual goes to visit his grandmother. Grandma, her property backs up to a school. And the 17-year-old decides he's going to go sit on the swings and swing on the school property. It's on the weekend. No kids there. Two Canadian officers come up. They go out with him. He's not identifying himself. So they end up arresting him. There's no crime other than failing to identify himself. Two hours later, the 17-year-old kid is in an emergency room because in the cell for two hours, he engaged in self-injury behaviors to the extent he had to be hospitalized. His family 
in the meantime, had already filed a missing persons report. And the Canadian police finally figured out, oh, wait a minute, we have that kid. That's the one we arrested for refusing to identify himself. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize about the autistic community is approximately half of all autistic individuals are nonverbal. They don't communicate by speaking. The ability to communicate verbally in no way is connected to intellectual capability. Uh, You or your listeners can go out and uh, do a YouTube search for Elizabeth Bonkers. She graduated Rollins College here in Florida and was one of the class valedictorians. She actually gave her valedictorian speech, even though she's nonverbal. Wow. In order to communicate, she has to type. You'll probably be able to relate to this. Remember the old hunt, hunt, you know, the old pilgrim typing. You got one finger, you hunt for the key. When you find it, you land on it. Hunt and peck. Yep. Yep. Except with one, not two, one finger. That's how she typed her graduation, her valedictorian speech. One finger, one letter at a time. And then when it was time to deliver, she stands there, hits enter, and the computer speaks for her. A lot of other nonverbal autistic individuals will either use American Sign Language or what's called the Picture Exchange Communication System, PECS which is essentially pointing at icons. It's almost like speaking in emoji, but pointing at icons to represent words. I would be willing to bet that there is a large part of the law enforcement community that knows nothing about those, those types of communication devices. Again, uh, it's, it's something that we're seeing a lot more awareness of autism uh, nationally but it's still not where it needs to be. Um, my autism class, I actually got certified through IATLAS to make it easier for various states to accept it and for the officers to get credit for having had that training. Doc, as we're wrapping things up here, man, I personally want to thank you for your willingness to share at, at ILEDA the class that you did, eye-opening eye-opening. In fact, it was so eye-opening that we brought you in a virtual academy and did some content because we I found it so powerful. Uh, but for folks that are out there, uh, listen, if you're looking for a way to get your agency up to speed, if you're looking for a way to improve those interactions, to make things safer for, for, uh, for your officers, for the people they encounter, I cannot recommend highly enough Doc's training. You will not regret it. It is money well spent. Your people will be better. Your community is going to be better off. Take time. Give this guy a call. Listen to what he has to say. We'll uh, make sure that we put links, even though he says he's not a a genuine webmaster, (laughs) we'll put a link to your website where they can find you there, your LinkedIn. And also you've mentioned some other links throughout the the episode. We'll put those in the show notes. And I'm going to do my best to find that uh, YouTube video. So folks, if they're interested, they can kind of see that as well. Hey, Doc, brother, it was good seeing you again, man. Thanks so much for coming on here and talking to us today. I appreciate the invite. And uh, Brent, you you know that old phrase, man, if I only knew then what I knew now. When I talk to people like Doc, I realize how little I knew then and and how much better I would have been. And like you mentioned before we started recording, another guy who talked something very similar to this, Chip Huth, talking about seeing people as people and understanding where they're coming from, seek to understand before being understood. I think that's a powerful statement. I think that applies here. And I think if we had that mindset, 
we'd be on a, a different trajectory of where we need to go as a society, I think. Absolutely. But if I were going to add a subtitle to the episode today, remember the old ladies on the porch. <laughs>